Well, good morning again. This is a, it's kind of a fun morning. We've been going through 1 Corinthians for 25 weeks, ever since we've existed as a campus. That's when we started, was going through this letter. And, uh, and this week, one of our worship pastors from our Brookside campus was like, we should have like a celebration because we got through it. And uh, all the pastors just laughed. He's like, no, I'm serious. Like, we actually got through it. We should really celebrate that. Um, so I don't know what they're doing. We're not celebrating. Um, I'm celebrating, at least in my own heart, that we get to move on next week to the story of Moses and his life a little bit. I'm really excited um, for that. But I'm excited about kind of the, surprisingly, the end of this letter where Paul sort of just seems to say a bunch of random things. Um, and yet there's a unifying theme behind all of those things that I don't want us to miss. As Paul concludes this letter to a church, he's, he's unpacked a lot of big themes too. Um, so let's take a moment, let's pray um, now as we, we enter into this letter. Let's pray. God, thank you for the fact that you've spoken through your word and we all need to hear. God, to know that, you, that you're there, that you've spoken, that, that all of our life is to be a response to you. But God, the only way we can respond is if we know not just in our minds, but deep in our hearts, your word has spoken and we need to respond. So God, help us to hear this morning that we might respond. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church can be the worst. I realize it's probably the last thing you might expect a pastor to say, but let's be honest. Some of you have thought it. Maybe some of you have even said it out loud. In pain, in frustration or desperation, maybe in sadness, just a frustration moment that happened in, in the church. If there's one thing I've learned as a pastor, one story that I continually hear over and over when I meet Christians or when I meet new people or when new people walk in through the doors of a church is that it seems like most everyone has a story of a Christian or a church really inflicting a deep wound into their, their life. That maybe it was, was hypocrisy. Maybe it was abuse of power. Maybe it was just they just started, the church started believing really weird things and started saying and communicating really strange things. Maybe it was just that, that sin became a reality and people refused to repent of it. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, but it seems like that is the, the story I hear more than any other as a pastor. And that being a pastor in this context largely means helping people work through spiritual abuse or past hurt with the church. And one thing I pray for us as a church is that we are a place that is a place of healing, right? a place where people can come in and be healed from past wounds and not a place that piles it on. And I pray regularly for that. And I hope you'll pray for us as a church that we'd be true of that because that's a reality. It's so easy for a church to be a place of pain or hurt. A church can be messy. And, and believe it or not, that, that's actually one reason I became a pastor was because the church is messy. As a, a young Christian and, and as, as in high school kind of thinking through what I wanted to do with my life, I read through the book of Acts. And if you've ever read through the book of Acts, it, it presents, a, for the most part, a really positive view of the, the early church. And I remember reading that and just thinking, I want to be like the early church. I want to do what they did. I want to be like them. And if we were just like the early church, everything would be fine. The church would be awesome. People would hold hands. We'd have matching t-shirts. All that would be great. And then we read through 1 Corinthians. And my hope is over the last 25 weeks as we've pressed into all of the different things going on in that church, I hope you all come to the conclusion, I hope we're nothing like the early church. I mean, that church is a mess. There's divorce, there's incest, there's adultery, there's spiritual pride, people convinced of their, 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 that they're better than everyone else around them. Now, I read this letter and I think, I hope we're nothing like the early church. The church 
no matter when or where or how, is always messy. And it leaves us with just a few options. What do you do, right? What do you do when the church is a mess? And one, maybe the most predominant option is you, you can leave. You can give up. Throw in the towel. And that's what a lot of people do. I mean, you don't need the church to, to know God. You don't need the church to pursue spirituality. I can, I can know Jesus on my own. And in fact, it's actually a lot better to know Jesus on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. in my own bed. I'm a much better Christian there than I am here. Right? I mean, I can know God without, without anyone else. So we leave. I mean, that's one. That's one. I mean, another option is just to disengage. To be here physically, like you're there, you're present, but you're not all the, way, all the way present. You're not emotionally present. You're not spiritually present. You're here, but you're not. You're not dialed in, and you keep a distance, hoping that distance that you keep prevents you from being hurt here in the way that you've been hurt in the past. That's what most Christians, or a lot of Christians, or a lot of people tend to do in our culture when it comes to the messiness of the church, is to leave or to disengage. And Paul in his life, what we just heard read, this, this letter, present, presents a very different way. And if anyone had a reason to leave or disengage the church, it was Paul. In fact, I would argue Paul had more of a reason than you or I might ever have. And what we see in Paul's life is that the messiness of the church, and the church is messy, but Paul, Paul lays out, it's worth it. Yes, the church is messy, but it's worth it. And I could say that too in my own life, having spent most of my life in the church, having spent 12 years as a pastor, I have seen the worst of sin that can happen in the church. I mean it, the worst. And yet I still think the church is worth it. And yet Paul embodies it far better than I ever will. And, and as you look through and you read through this letter, these final seemingly random thoughts, there's this theme of the beauty in the midst of the mess of the church and how for Paul, even though the church is messy, the church is still worth working for, it's still worth giving to, and it's still worth our love. It's still worth loving. So Paul starts with, listen, the church is still worth working for. And, and in, in verse 5, we didn't read these verses, Paul lays out kind of his itinerary for the, the months and the weeks ahead. And here's what he, he writes. It's pretty astonishing. It says, I will visit you, you the church in Corinth, after passing through Macedonia, and I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open for me, and there are many adversaries." For me, it's easy to read those verses and kind of get lost. I don't know those cities. I don't know what Paul's talking about. And yet we cannot miss the fact that, that in these verses, Paul is describing what was an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of energy to go to these places, to, to visit these cities, to start churches in these places. Stanford University has developed a, a thing called Orbis, which what it does is it takes the ancient world and you put in a city and you can figure out how much it cost, how long it took, um, and how, uh, how far it is to travel from one city to another. And so there was someone who went in and, and, and put in all of Paul's missionary journeys. And in all of Paul's life, he went on three different long, arduous missionary journeys. And they figured out how long Paul traveled, how much it cost, how, how many days it would have taken. And Paul, when he writes 1 Corinthians, his first two missionary journeys are already over. And at that point, Paul had already traveled 4,500 miles. No planes, no trains, no automobiles. This is on foot, by animal, 
dangerous paths, 4,500 miles. It would have taken him 150 days, a half of year just traveling and walking. And on top of that, Paul was a tent maker, which meant he ran his own small business. He was an entrepreneur in each city he went to. He started a new business. He preached almost every day. And on top of that, faced opposition, not just from people who hated Christians, but from within the own church. And so at this point, Paul, he started 15 to 20 new churches. He's given so much energy, so much work into the local church, such to the extent that even the most skeptical scholars today would see Paul as arguably the most influential person in the history of the Western world. Next to Jesus, some people argue he's more influential than Jesus. And in fact, one of the main reasons you and I know about Jesus at all is because a few thousand years ago, Paul made sure our ancestors heard the gospel. And he gave up an incredible amount of time, money, and energy to go to those places so the gospel was preached. But it's not just Paul's distance travel, like I mentioned. It's also that Paul received all kinds of opposition. And he mentions here in this letter, he mentions he's in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, probably at the point where he started that church. And if you read in Acts, we know the backstory of what happened when Paul started that church in Ephesus. And it's, they hated him. The city of Ephesus hated Paul, but they hated him for good reason. Because here's what happened. Paul goes to Ephesus. They don't, have the, they don't have any churches. He begins preaching the gospel, and people begin to be converted. But that, was, that created a problem. Because in Ephesus, there were all kinds of, of temples. And in those temples, there were all kinds of, of little idols, which were considered to be gods. And those gods, those idols, were made of silver. Which meant if you were a silversmith in Ephesus, you had a good business. Life was good. You had lots of people coming. Hey, I need this idol. You got to make it for me. I'll pay you this much. Life was good until Paul came and he converts all these people. They become Christians. They join the church. And if you join the church, you can't worship idols. Like we will never have a little silver idol up here, which meant these silversmiths suddenly didn't have any idols to make. The Paul in Acts 19, where the story is told, he literally ruins the economy of Ephesus. And the silversmiths get angry and they try to chase Paul down to arrest him, to, to abuse him, to get him out of town. And so that's when Paul says, I'm here in Ephesus, and there, the work's good, lots of conversion, but did you notice first night? And there are many adversaries, which in this moment was a reason for Paul to stay in Ephesus. But eventually the believers there say, we've got this, you go, get out of here, you're in danger. But it's not just that. It's not just threat outside of the church. Remember when Paul's sitting here in Ephesus, he gets this letter from the church in Corinth, and he hears they don't like him and they don't respect him. He started their church. In 1 Corinthians earlier, he said, I'm like your spiritual father. And yet it's clear throughout the letter, there's a, a large group of people in this church who think Paul's a joke. Who don't think he's not a good preacher, he's not a good leader, he's not a good church planner. We'd be better off without him. And Paul gets this letter under all this opposition. And yet, how does he respond? In the midst of this mess he's living in, how does he respond? Right? Two, two ways. Verse 7, he says, I hope to come and spend some time with you. You who don't respect me, don't like me, don't want me, I, I hope I can get some time with you. And then he ends, verse 24, the end of the letter, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And no matter what you think of the church, no matter whether you think the church is worth your work, your service, your life or not, you have to at least be impressed with how sold out Paul was to this mission. And beyond that, how much courage Paul exhibited. To me, courage is a lost art in our culture in many ways. And yet Paul, from the, day, from the beginning of his ministry to the end, was a man of courage. 
And that's even when he gets to verse 13 and 14. He sort of lays out two commands that sums up all of 1 Corinthians. That if they had done these two things, they'd been fine. We wouldn't have needed 16 chapters of this letter if they had done these two things. So Paul sums it up in two commands. The first one in verse 13, kind of these, these four imperatives string together. Here's what he says. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be courageous. Be strong. That Paul ends this letter by looking at the Corinthians and saying, have courage. Choose courage, not comfort. The reality for me is, so often my default is comfort. What's easiest for me? Like I, The only thing I think about right now is that in about five hours, I'm going to be on my couch with a fan around me watching golf. Right? I want, my default is comfort, and that's what I can't wait. I can't wait, I can't wait for that. And that's, I don't know about you, that's my default, and that's what we choose. So Paul is saying, Corinthians, you're choosing comfort. You're going with the crowd, in particular in two ways. Because in that city, they, they, in the city of Corinth, there were two things Paul says you have to believe if you're going to be a Christian there, and you're not believing it. So even when Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, he's saying, believe what I taught you. Right? He's not just saying, feel the right sorts of things, agree with me on the right sorts. He's saying, I preach the gospel to you, and you're giving up. And there are two things that they gave up in particular that Paul's pressed into several times in this letter. The first, in the city of Corinth, it's much like our American culture, right? Work your way up, be a self-made man, and when, you're get, when you get there, right, and make a name for yourself that shows that you've done it, you're better, you're more significant. And that was the culture in Corinth. And Paul says, remember, what, what, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, the first week we were here, Paul says, listen, God shows what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He shows what is despised to shame what is approved. You're not anything. You worship a crucified Messiah. You have to humble yourself to enter into this kingdom. You're not better than anyone else. And the Corinthians couldn't buy into that. The reality then was that they were prideful people, looking down on others, even looking down on the apostle Paul. That's one area. They weren't courageous. They didn't push back against their culture. The other was, was their sexual immorality. And we spent three weeks unpacking that in 1 Corinthians earlier. And just to summarize, the reality is in, in just about any culture the church has lived, the, the culture has looked at the church and said, listen, what you guys think about sex, the idea that sex is only to be beautiful in the context of, of marriage is a joke. You cannot believe that and be a self-respecting citizen in our culture. And so the Corinthians in that day said, okay, that's fine. We'll, do, we'll, we'll give on that one. And Paul says, No. No, you, that, that's antithetical to the gospel. Be courageous there. And the reality is you and I face the same pressure in our day to give on those two points. To not make the church a place of humility and repentance, that we come into this place knowing that we are only here because we're sinful and God welcomes us. And also we, look, we have a culture that tells us, listen, when you believe about sex, it's a complete joke. You guys are weird. And we can either, be, we can either have courage in those two spaces, or we can, we can be comfortable. And yet I would argue, and I wish I had time to really unpack this, but I would argue our culture wants us to have courage here. The people who most push back on our view of sex and our view, especially our view of, of pride, they want us to be weird. I'll illustrate it this way. Some of you may be familiar with Anne Rice. She wrote Interview with a Vampire, uh, wrote, written several other uh, bestseller books. She was a Catholic at one point. She left the Catholic Church. She came back later in life, and then she left uh, a couple years ago because of the church's teaching on, on human sexuality. Um, but I was reading an article which was explaining why she was leaving the church, why she was leaving the church again, saying, I don't believe in the... Um, 
I don't believe in the way that the Bible talks about sex. I don't agree with it. I think it's wrong. The church is backwards, all that. And then someone asked her, well, who are some of your favorite authors? And what was fascinating to me is she mentioned one of my professors at Trinity, probably someone none of you have heard of. His name is D.A. Carson. He's, to me, one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars we have. She's like, I love reading his commentaries on the Bible, which is just really weird to me. And she says why. She says the reason is because the way he interprets the Bible is just brilliant. He actually tells me what the Bible means to say. And even though I don't agree with any of it, it's brilliant. And I think that's a, that's a window, and I could, I could give a lot of other illustrations, but it's a window into the fact that people don't want us just to come and say, oh, well, the Bible says this about sex, but you say this, and that's been around for at least like 40 years. Maybe we should just throw that behind and go. I would advocate, even though we're going to get pushback in this and people are going to see us as weird and strange, I think they want us to be weird. So let's just own that. I mean, let's be honest, we're all a little weird anyway, right? Let's just be the right kind of weird. And that's what Paul's saying here. Listen, be courageous. Stand firm in the faith. Be faithful to what I've taught you. Don't give on the gospel. There's nothing like it in the world. And you give on that. And there's nowhere else people will find it. And in a world where sex is a commodity, where your physical attractiveness is how people judge you, where everyone thinks they're better than everyone else, let's be weird. Let's go a different way. Let's show that the the way our world thinks is fine for them, but we're different because our gospel calls us to be different. That's why Paul says to this church, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, have courage. And there's two ways to live out this how. What does Paul mean? Okay, have courage, stand firm in the faith, Stay true to the gospel. How do we do that as a church? And I would say two ways individually and then one way corporately we do it. The two way individually, one, you have to be regularly engaged in reading the scriptures. If you're not, of course this world's going to be more compelling to you. Of course. It's, listen, if you're not engaged in this word, you're not going to see how compelling it is. You are going to think it's backwards. And so that's why we, we, we put energy behind our Open Here series, our daily Bible readings that go alongside the sermon. If you're not engaged in that, you want those emails or, or you want to grab a bookmark, please engage there. But individually, all of us, to stay true to the gospel, have to be engaged in the scriptures. But second, not just individually to be engaged, but also in community. That's why it's important to not just read the Bible by yourself in your own room, but to be engaged with other Christians gathered around the Bible, reading it together, understanding it together. It's why our Sunday morning worship gathering is so important, that we come, we read the Bible together, we preach it, we we think through it together. Because none of us on our own are going to understand this book with the depth and beauty and understanding God means for us. And so that's two practical ways for you to live it out in your life. Make sure engaging the scriptures is regularly a part of your rhythm. There's another way we as a corporately, as a church, are beginning and continue to do this, that we believe in the value of, of in particular, seminary education, right? My professor that I studied under is, is being read by a cultural shaper in Anne Rice. We believe in the importance of the seminary as an institution, so we support my alma mater, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's where Andrew went. Um, as well. And, and even better news, um, starting this fall, we're going to become an extension site, um, Christ Community at, of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which means if you want to take classes at a seminary la- uh, level from some of the best um, scriptural studiers, some of the best minds uh, in scripture that the world has, um, you get to here in Kansas City. Um, and it's, it's an amazing thing. And so if you're interested, um, ask me more. I'd love to engage you there. But we as a church, that's, we believe that we have to stand firm in the faith. And seminary is a big part of that, right? That's why I carved out three years of my life 
to gather in a community, get the Bible in front of me, and for me to, to, to stop talking and to listen to the Word of God, to let it shape me so that it can become the message that I speak for the rest of my life. And so, all that to say, church, Paul comes in here, he gives all of this work, he preaches this gospel, and he says, let's be courageous, let's work for the church with courage, and it's, it's worth it. So that's where Paul starts, church is worth working for, but second, the church is worth giving to. And I know any time, um, any moment, uh, a pastor starts talking about money, it gets weird, and, and let's be honest, pastors do it in a lot of bad ways. It's one reason I'm thankful to have a multi-site church, I have pastors who are far wiser than me, have helped me think through this. But Paul goes right to the question of giving and generosity in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 16. Here's what he says. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In verse 3, When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So what Paul says here is, is he, one of his biggest works as a church planner was this collection for the church in Jerusalem. In about AD 40, there was a, a huge famine which devastated Jerusalem, uh, the city of Jerusalem, as well as the Jerusalem church, which is where Christianity started, was in Jerusalem after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And so the church was very poor. It, it had undergone a famine. And so Paul went into the Gentile world, which was much wealthier and much more well-resourced, and he collects this huge offering to then be directed back to the Jerusalem church to help feed them. And there's something interesting about what Paul does here. Because I used to work with the assumption that the generosity, it's like the varsity Christian value, right? Like that's what the all-star Christians do. I mean, the rest of us, we just try not to cuss too much or whatever we do. But the real Christians give and they're generous. And Paul, remember, he's writing to arguably the most immature church in all the New Testament. I mean, there's incest. Right? There's, there's adultery. There's all kinds of weird things happening in this church. And yet Paul says, be generous. It's not a varsity Christian value. It's as integrated to you as your Christian life as every other thing that we do as a church community. It's as integral as prayer. It's as integral as, as, as corporate worship and singing together. It's as integral as, as fellowship and instruction of the word of God. And to us, Christ community, our other non-negotiable as a church, it's donut holes. It's as integral as donut holes. I think that's funny, at least. I mean, all of you eat them every week, right? It's like if we ever didn't have donut holes, you'd leave. You know it. Um, but that's how, that's how integral gen- generosity is to us as a church. It is, it is integral to your discipleship and, who you, and following after Jesus. And it's not something you get to once you, you climb the ladder of maturity. It's something we are all called to, as Paul says, in accordance to what we've been given. And so no matter where you are in life, your spiritual maturity, whether you think you're mature or immature, and even no matter the messiness of the church, right? I mean, there can be a reality where we say, well, the church, I just don't like it enough. I'm not going to give. Well, Corinthian church wouldn't have been a church I would have wanted to give to. And yet Paul says, set some aside regularly first of the week so that the church can function, so that the poor can be served. We're called to be generous. And so this is a moment where I, as a pastor, sort of have a unique role and most pastors have to say, hey, you need to give more. You need to be more generous. I don't have that problem. We in Christ community, you in Christ community, are, we are just an incredibly generous church. And just two or three ways that's evidence. One, we started here nine months early because of your generosity. We had the, mar- the financial margin just to go and start because we felt God moving in that direction because you're a generous people. That we're at this moment continuing to look hard for a permanent facility for us as a church because your generosity creates space for us to go forward in God's 
mission, that your generosity enables us to serve Kansas City and our partners and the poor here in Kansas City in ways churches our size tend to never be able to do. And so I have an easy job this morning, just to say thank you for your generosity, how generous you are as a church. I'm encouraged. It's one of the things we regularly as a staff thank God for. I mean, there are tons of moments um, where we campus pastors are together with Tom, Kevin, our senior pastors, and we just stop and, and praise God for your generosity. So thank you. Um, but I would also say this is, a, this is an area we can always improve, always area at least I can always get bat, better at. And, and more importantly, I think some good practical advice for Paul here. I think we tend to just say, hey, you need to be more generous, right? Which just sounds like the unending guilt trip. Like, well, of course I could always be more generous. I mean, I can give you my shoe right now. Do you want it? Like this, what, what do we do? And Paul does three things or offers three pieces of advice, very practical here. One, that giving should be a regular discipline, right? Paul says, first of the week, set it aside, so in other words, it's not just whatever's left over. It's not just whatever happens. It's make the decision. When are you going to give? How much are you going to give? When are you going to give it? And make it a part of the rhythm of your life. Set it aside. Second, Paul holds up the, the, the value of giving it to the local church. Now, what's interesting here is, is Paul doesn't just say, hey, all of you individual Christians, you know, there's a famine in Jerusalem. Why don't you send money to them and help them? No, he says, gather it up together as a church. I think the reason for that is, is when a church gathers money together and gives and blesses the poor, what we can do is far more efficient, more, far more effective, and, and uh, just a better way to, to serve the under-resourced and poor. And, and so that's one reason why I love our multi-site model. We're able to do way more in Kansas City because of our side, because we pull our resources together and attack some of the big problems that our city has. And each September, if, if you didn't know, it's good for you to be aware, each September we have a congregational meeting well, we approve that money that we set aside both to, to serve our church on mission as well as to serve our church on mission by, by blessing the poor and serving the under-resourced in, in, in Kansas City and beyond. And so that's a space for you to go and hear and, and know and vote on how we use that money. Um, but just to, to put some, a visible face or a visible picture alongside of what this means for us as a church is, is one of our best partners at Christ Community is an organization called Advice and Aid. Um, what's interesting is, is Leewood started the, our first campus, Leewood started the relationship at Advice and Aid. Well, now you and I here in Shawnee, we're just down the road from Advice and Aid, which is just a couple miles away from us here. And so we get to serve them in a unique and new way because we're proximity uh, much closer to them. And Advice and Aid, it's an amazing organization if you're not familiar with, um, with them. They engage um, women who are, are in unexpected pregnancies. They give them help. They give them counseling. They supply them with education and direction as well as emergency relief. It's an amazing, amazing place. And so a few months back, um, alongside their leadership, um, some really great people who are part of our church said, we want to find a way just to love on and bless these moms. Being a mom is a really hard job. Right, and I know today's Father's Day, and, and, and I want to speak to that. If you're a dad, we're glad you're here. But let's be honest, being a mom's way harder. It just is in so many ways. And imagine on top of that um, being a single mom right, without a dad alongside or a, a pregnancy you weren't expecting. And suddenly there's a child there you want to love, you want to give your life to, but you didn't plan for it. You're not ready. And here he or she is. And so we just wanted to give a night and love on them. Just say, you're a mom, and you're awesome just because you're a mom. Um, and it was amazing to see all the work um, that went into that. Many of you in here helped make that night a success. Aaron Boss, in particular, gave us a lot of leadership to help pull off that night. And it was a huge success. And after that night was over, Kay Angle, one of their um, leaders over at Vice and Age, she sent me an email, a few of us an email, about the night and the impact it had on the moms there. And I just want to share that email with you briefly. 
Here's what she wrote us. I wish you could have seen their faces after they got their haircuts. Wow. Grinning from ear to ear and bopping their heads and around, feeling so wonderful and fresh with a new do. Kay's a little older than I. I don't know how they've gone with that word, but new do. The chair massages were amazing, and they were refreshed after these. And they were pretty polished nails with extra, or nails with sparkles and extra pretties. They loved every minute of the pampering and loving they received that night. One of the moms asked me how we were able to plan something so great for them, and I share with her that there are wonderful people in the community who love them and support them for their choice for life and wanting to be good moms, and these people all generously provided the services, food, and gifts for the evening. I think for me, that just highlights why, how we can do more as a church, right? I mean, if, if they came to me and said, hey, Tim, come do a spa night, it'd be terrible, right? Let's be honest. We just watch football or something. That's all it'd be. But we, we gathered together. People from Olathe helped with the event. We and Shawnee engaged in the event. And it was this beautiful night where we just loved on these moms and said, keep at it. We love you. We're here for you. We support you. We're your neighbors. We pray for you. And we get to do that together. And stuff like this is worth giving to. It's why we're committed as a church to being a generous church, and it's why Paul encouraged these Christians to give to their local church so their local church can serve the poor in Jerusalem, the under-resourced. So that's the first two practical things, right? First, regular rhythm. Set it aside. Second, make the church a priority. Third, just pick a number and give, right, as you're able. And that's, what Paul, that's where Paul ends. He says, give as you prosper. And my word to there would be... Just pick a percentage and go after it. And the Bible, I think, lays out 10% is a good number to start. It's not a magical number. Maybe it's too high. Maybe it's too low. But pick a number. Set it aside as you've been, as you've been given to, as you've prospered. Which also means, as you prosper more, considering more, consider more margin for generosity. That, again, one of the reasons why we can do so much as a church is because we have people in our church who've done that, who've created that margin in their life, and we as a church get to do so much, get to say yes so often to the poor, to planning new churches, to developing new leaders, like the fellowship program who you have, we see with Andrew and me and our walk there. So again, let me end with where I started. Thank you. This is a generous church, and I hope you just feel encouraged in this moment of all the good things that you get to be a part of because of your generosity. So the church is worth working for, the church is worth giving to, and lastly, the church is worth loving. And that's where Paul ends, right? The first command he gives to them, in summary, is be courageous. And secondly, in verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. And if they had followed this command, we wouldn't have had this entire letter, right? They they weren't loving one another. Instead, they were quarreling in the name of their own leaders. They were questioning Paul's leadership. They were suing one another. They were looking down on the weaker members among them. They were disregarding the poor who were in their midst, they were worshiping selfishly and saw their own spiritual gifts, the way God had blessed them as a means to make sure their voice is heard, not to make sure their neighbor is served. And so this raises a question for us this morning. I think the question that, that maybe you had at the beginning, maybe you still have, or at least I still have, and you should still have, which is okay, if, if the church is so messy, I mean, if, if we read through this letter of Corinthians, and that's the reality of so many churches, why why give to the church? Why serve the church? Why love the church? Why invest here alongside all the other good things you give your life to, from your families to your jobs to whatever it is? Why invest here when it can be so messy? Or well, unreason. And it's a little hidden. It seems a little 
a little aggressive of Paul, but we need to hear this verse. It's verse 22. This is Paul's kind of final parting shot to the people who didn't like him. He says this. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. You may be thinking, that doesn't sound like a motivating way to, to be a part of the church. It sounds kind of harsh and mean, actually. You have to remember the context. Paul is frustrated with these Christians because they've done one thing, and that is they have changed the gospel. And Paul's saying there, if you don't love Jesus and his gospel, then you're cursed. And here's why. Not because you're not believing the right things, not because you don't love the right things, not because you don't, you don't act the right way. No, what he, what he said is the, the core of the gospel is that the God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose the things that are not to put to shame the things that are. God chose the despised to come in and speak to those who have power. And if you disagree with that, if you think you're better than other people, if you have pride, if you think you're more significant and, 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 and more moral or more upstanding than other people, then you're cursed. You can't receive the gospel. You're not ready. And that, to me, the gospel itself is why the church is worth your work, your generosity, your love. Because we're the only place that can say with, with an honesty and a truthfulness that there is grace here. That yes, the church is a mess. But take a step back. What sort of crowd does grace attract? It doesn't attract upstanding people who think they have their lives together and don't need help. Right? Jesus didn't attract those people. In fact, those people disliked Jesus. But it did attract the rich young centurion who, whose, whose a servant was lying dead and almost dead. And he comes to Jesus, really breaking social custom, pleading for Jesus to come and save his, his, his servant's life. It's the poor, it's the tax collectors, it's those who, whose society just set aside, who longed for grace, and Jesus said, come to me. And our gospel isn't just a gospel of grace. It's a gospel that takes the mess and makes it beautiful. And if you have had the joy of seeing the gospel work in a good, healthy local church, you know that's true. I pray that's true here. But that's why the church is worth, worth your work, worth your effort, worth your generosity. That this week, um, obviously, the most dominant story in the news is the shooting that happened in, in Charleston. I was in a conference this week, so there's about a day where I didn't, I didn't realize it had happened, but it's just astonishing, right? African Americans in their church praying, studying their Bibles together when a white man walks in with the intent to, to kill them. But there are two things that, that astonish me more than anything else in that story. One is he sat with them for over an hour and felt loved and felt welcomed. I mean, I'm assuming they didn't know his intent, but he... And he, he told someone that he almost didn't go through with his plan because they were so loving to him. This vicious killer, vicious racist who walks in to kill him, and they love him anyway. And even the more powerful thing, obviously, being that the family members, as he's being arraigned in court, shouting out, we forgive you. Christians who have been wrecked by grace themselves, who have come into a church or into the, have heard the gospel and have taken it deep in, deep enough into where they can look at, at, a, at someone who's horrible and, t- and done a terrible thing and forgive. And that should be the church, right? Us, worshipers of Jesus. Jesus, who himself was a victim 
of racism, who was put before Rome, and Pilate knew he could kill Jesus, even though he acknowledged Jesus' innocence. He knew he could kill him anyway because Rome wouldn't say anything about it. And so he did. Put Jesus on a cross, crucified him, killed him. A mess. And then three days later came resurrection, came life, came beauty. In fact, the beauty came even before that when Jesus was on his cross and looked out at people mocking him, spitting at him, gambling over his clothes. And he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. We, the church, are the bearers of that message, which is why this place is worth your work, your generosity, your love. We're the only place with that message, that grace, that can say with truth and courage and hope, that we may all be a mess, but Christ makes us beautiful. So I want to take a moment now as we close and pray for our brothers and sisters in Charleston who are having a very different service than us this morning and just to, to be united with them and be reminded that the Christians, of, brothers and sisters in Christ in, in, in Charleston were martyred for their faith in many ways, for following after Jesus, studying their Bible together. Let's pray for them and let's pray for that church. Father, we thank you that you are a God who makes beauty out of ashes, pulls people out of the pit and sets them on a rock. But God, we look at at Charleston and the violence and we don't understand. We ask alongside the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long until your kingdom comes when what is done in heaven will be done on earth? How long until the cries for justice will be answered? How long until the victims of injustice will hear your word from the throne vindicating them? Father, we ask that you would be near our brothers and sisters in Christ at Emmanuel African American, African Methodist Episcopal Church, that in the valley of death be their shepherd. Comfort them with your rod and staff. Prepare a table for them in the presence of their enemies, that in the midst of this famine they would be reminded that you are a God of justice. And our martyred brothers and sisters are with you now at your table, a table of goodness and mercy a table where our cups and their cups now overflow. And God, I ask you would create in us a new heart, that you would take the mess of our lives and make it beautiful. God, the messiness we can make the church, and you'd make it beautiful. The gospel would shine in all of our lives and in this space where any mess could come in and and we would have the hope and the compassion and the joy to know it will become beautiful because of the power of Christ. And so make us instruments of your justice and kindness that we, your church, would stand with courage against injustice and sin in all its forms. And so, Lord, the shootings are a reminder that in this life we don't just struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, that there's an evil in this world that can only be defeated by Jesus when he returns victorious. And so with that, we have one prayer above all other this morning, the words from Paul in 1 Corinthians, Come, Lord Jesus. Come.